Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Christine Hargis. It is currently October 20th, and if you listened to last week's episode, you know that Todd Campbell, our regular healthcare contributor to this show, is in the house for a writer's conference, so we want to pre-record a couple of episodes, and by the time you're listening to this, listeners, it will probably be at least November 2nd. So, Todd, welcome again to the show. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, and it's just wonderful to be able to sit with you and talk about some really cool stuff that's going on in healthcare and helping our you know listeners figure out how to make the most money from it all. It's been fun. It's also been interesting to do two episodes in a row. I mean, we've never done this before. We record each week, day of. I know it's new territory for us, so you know, bear with us. Yeah, I, there are a couple of podcasts that I listen to that they do regularly record a couple of shows in a row, and they're very open about it. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's efficient. So. Here we are being all efficient and professional. (laughs) So on today's show, we wanted to talk a little bit about the merger and acquisition landscape. It's something that is a really hot topic, particularly in healthcare, where you see a lot of consolidation, a lot of bigger companies snapping up smaller ones, trying to boost their revenue by buying out a company that's doing something great. But there's also a lot of talk about is the, the the space getting too hot? You know, is it too expensive? Are companies overpaying? What are your thoughts on a broad level there? I, I think that they've gotten less expensive than they were, say, a year ago. I mean, we've seen some dramatic pushback on drug prices um, just all over the political landscape in the in the course of the past yeah, election year. Election season has wrecked this and, industry. Yeah, and it's taken a big toll, obviously, on share prices for some of these market valuations of some of these companies. And it certainly makes you think that while you didn't want to pay through the nose last year, maybe you'd be more willing to sort of step up and make it offer now. But on the other end of that, you know, if you're the guy or gal owning the company that now has lost value, you're still looking at last year's valuation thinking, well, no, I'm worth this. So it may be harder to get deals done. They could get cheaper, but they may be harder to execute. And, you know, we've still, though, seen some deals get done, you know, and you alluded to a few of them. Um, and, And that's kind of exciting to think about, okay, you know, how are these companies going out and expanding themselves into oncology, you know, maybe like broadening themselves out. I mean, we know that people are getting, Americans are getting older. And as we get older, uh, we're more likely to get diagnosed with chronic illnesses, right, that are going to require treatments. So, you know, there are long-term, long-tail term uh, uh, reasons to still be interested in biopharma stocks. And the question before each of these companies that they're trying to figure out is, is it better to license or is it better to buy outright? Absolutely. And there is a lot of pressure to use your cash to do something. I think one company that comes to mind here is Pfizer. Pfizer has been very actively acquisitive for a while now. I mean, we have talked about several of their their deals. The first one that comes to mind is Allergan, which fell through. And that was a huge, splashy story because it would have been an enormous acquisition. But alas, didn't happen. So don't want to spend too much time on it. Perhaps a better one to talk about would be the Medivation deal, which was a lot more recent. This was a $13 billion purchase, essentially just for one drug named Xtandi. 50% of one <laughs> drug. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's be very specific there. So, 
Medivation only was getting 50% of the revenue from this drug. And so now Pfizer will only get 50% of the revenue from this drug. And so if you look at the, the peak sales there, estimates are about five to four to five billion peak annual sales. This is a drug that treats metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. So Medivation and now Pfizer would get at most two and a half billion per year there if you slice the, the four to five peak estimates in half. And they paid thirteen billion. So that's a five point two X multiple. That's a ton. That, that, that's expensive. Yeah, and and they're looking at it and saying, well, there's patent protection on this drug that's going to stretch out for long enough where we're going to get a good return on investment, and we can leverage a lot of the costs out of Medivation by integrating them with our existing. I mean, Pfizer's a Goliath, right? Mm -hmm. They already have all the sales, the marketing, all the things that they would need to be able to make Extandy uh, jump sales jump. So they don't really need a lot of that overlap. They can x out a lot of costs. So I think that they looked at it and they said, okay, on a cash flow base. Uh, we can make this deal be a creative, so let's go ahead and jump in and do it. But it's so much more money than, say, you know, other company like Astellas would have paid, you know, to get 50% of the rights to uh, Extandy uh, while it was still in clinical trials. And I think that that's really coming down to you've got two different approaches for these companies. You've got the approach where they can pay out less upfront. You know, we'll give you an upfront uh, payment, plus we'll offer you milestones if. The drug does well in clinical trials, or if you hit certain sales uh, thresholds, we'll pay you a little extra money for that. Um, but you're taking on big risk. You know, I mean, 90% of drugs in clinical trials fail. They don't make it to market. So that's why you're able to buy them cheap. Or you can go the other way and say, like Pfizer, and say, no, we're going to buy proven ent drugs that are already billion dollar blockbusters. Uh, and they're de-risked. We can model them better. Ensure there could be competitors along the way that eat into that market share. So there's two very, very different arguments in how these companies want to. Right. There, there's kind of two different elements to this decision. So you have how early stage do you want to go? Do you want to buy the drug when it is just through phase one and it looks sort of promising, maybe, and you can probably get it for very, very cheap because, as you mentioned, the the failure rate is extremely high. Or do you wait until it's already in the hands of the FDA and then go for it? And then the other thing at play here is what sort of agreement do you want to make? Do you want to buy the company with the drug outright and therefore get 100% of it just in your lap for you to deal with? Or do you want to do some sort of licensing deal where you pay a little bit at a time and you, you incorporate these milestones and you end up with, say, 50% of eventual profits from right. the drug? Right. And, you know, and that just reminded me, there's a third leg to that stool, which is your own internal R&D. So you can be developing a drug like Gilead Sciences tried to take on Imbravica with Zydelic. Okay, in chronic uh, leukemia, uh, certain types of rare forms of leukemia. So I think that one of the things that um, they're also weighing is, okay, do I, to what degree do I want to um, invest in my own R&D versus say, you know, buy something versus say, license something? And you know, it, it is, it's all juggling match that management is continuously making. Uh, let's take another example and dig into it a little bit. So. Uh, Johnson Johnson and AbbVie are their their overlap is this drug called Imbruvica, and so this is the first chemotherapy-free first-line treatment for CLL, which is the most common form of leukemia. 
Johnson Johnson paid a company called Pharmacyclics $150 million upfront back in December 2011 when the drug was in phase two. What a great and, deal yeah, that was. So this was to get a 50-50 profit loss split and then, you know, so $150 million plus any milestones that came after that. But this was, going back to the, the dynamics that we were mentioning earlier, this was a kind of risky bet because it was an earlier stage drug and they also chose to go the 50% only route. So then, much later, March 2015, AbbVie pays $21 billion to buy Pharmacyclics outright after the drug is already, I, I forget if it was already in the hands of the FDA, but it was much, much later yeah, no, stage. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was out there. It was already starting I mean, to, to make money and generate revenue. And you're right, who got the better deal? I, I mean, it's kind of questionable who did. I mean, when you look at the risk that Johnson & Johnson took there, I, I don't know. I think you would have to do a little bit of math and, and it, you know, back of the enveloping it, if you look at drug success rates and you multiply that by peak sales, you could, I, I, I don't know. I, looking at this, think that Johnson Johnson obviously got the better deal, but it might not have been that bad of a deal for AbbVie either. They think that its half of the share alone could eventually bring in $7 billion a year in additional revenue. Yeah, and you know, AbbVie needed to make something happen too because they, they run the risk of losing patent protection soon on their best-selling drug that accounts for a lion's share of their revenue. So they want to be able to diversify away from autoimmune diseases where Humira is just such a Goliath and be able to um, target other indications like oncology. And this really allowed the, allows them to do that and gives them now something that they can build off of and really expand you know, into new markets. So it was an important deal for them to make, and I think it was the right deal for them to make. You know, We talk a lot on the show about how important it is to diversify yourself. And I just was thinking as we're talking, well, that's exactly what these companies are doing. right? They're diversifying their risk, because in some instances, they're doing their own internal R&D. In other instances, they're licensing, and if they're licensing at $150 million up front, maybe they do 10 of those deals. You know, and then if, and, and then of course the other end of that is they, they go out and buy things that they know work and they already made it to the market and they're already blockbusters. So I think it's just smart management and I think you'll continue to see that happen. Um, it'll be really interesting though to see how this plays out as far as acquisitions over the course of the next year. For sure. You mentioned the pressure that some companies feel to do something with their money and make acquisitions. And a lot of them have succumbed to this pressure, and so they're they're shelling out a ton of money to try to diversify. One company that is a strong standout in the opposite direction is Gilead Sciences. We talk about them all the time. So you may already realize, listeners, they've got a lot of cash that they're sitting on. And quarter after quarter in their earnings conference calls, you hear analysts saying, hey guys, what are you going to do with this cash? When are you going to make an acquisition? And every time, their answer is just like, we're evaluating what to do with our cash, and we'll do the right thing with it when the time comes. Right, right deal, right price. Yeah, and if history shows you anything, Gilead has been very, very good at acquisitions. And so, as a shareholder and a big fan of the company, I trust them to sit on it a little bit more and and have patience to make the right move. But there is that pressure. Exactly, and, and it's weighed on the share price too. We've been we've become a quarter quarter to quarter investors as a whole. Right, so people aren't looking capital F foolishly when it comes to their portfolios. They're looking foolishly lowercase, where they're saying, "Okay, I'm going to go in and out, in in and out, in in and out." And you know, I went back and I looked at Gilead Sciences share price returns over the course of I think it was the last decade I did, and there were over 20 instances where the, where the stock fell more than five percent in any given month. Yet, you know, if you stuck with the uh, with the stock, you're up like 378 percent. 
Right. So, you know, yes, there are going to be stumbles and bumps and bruises along the way. And we're seeing that right now because there's competition that is eating into their um, sales for their hepatitis C drugs because it's affecting prices, driving prices, all that stuff. Um, but I feel like that's kind of temporary because what we've seen in the past is that this is a company that knows how to innovate. It knows how to buy smart. Um, and I think that what you'll find is that five years from now, this will be a stronger stock that's growing again. So my, I always try to encourage people to kind of think further up. Don't worry too much about what we're seeing over the course of the last 12 months, the last three months. Okay, Think more about where you think that these companies could be five years out, 10 years out. And I think when you do that, you look at this and you say, wow, Gilly's got deep pockets. It's got plenty of cash flow rolling in. It's an attractive investment, especially now it's got a dividend yield that's about two and a half percent. I mean, that's that's pretty compelling when you consider, you know, the alternative treasuries. Yield yeah. And when little. you look at how cheap they are too, it, it's to me this is kind of a no-brainer of a stock. But you did a great job of laying out the capital F foolish way of looking at it. And of course, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against them. So do your own research. Don't buy or sell based solely on what we're saying here today. Todd, thank you so much for joining me in studio. Well, it was my pleasure. It's been fun. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks so much for listening, and Fool on!